My name is Sandy Coker. Sandy heard herself saying. And I'm the lead inspector for the Arkansas Highway and Transportation Department on job AR-4005, Greenland to West Fork. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Steve Yates about his novella, Sandy and Wayne. You did good, real good, Sandy. You saved him. At its heart, the novella is a love story and asks us to confront gender stereotypes and two star-crossed highway department workers on both Missouri and Arkansas highways. It struck me that Sandy kind of becomes Wayne. Yeah. Writer Steve Yates and Sandy and Wayne on Arts and Letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Steve Yates about his novella, Sandy and Wayne, featuring two star-crossed highway department workers who confront love, tragedy, and work. Wayne shut off the engine. Now, he said, facing her. It was as if he knew. She swung at him, struck his chest, wailed at his arm. Damn it, Wayne! Damn him! Damn it! She flailed away twice more until her swing lacked heart. He caught both her wrists as her fists came at him one last time. Be still, he said firmly. Be still now. Settle it down. When she began to sob, he wrapped his arms around her. Slowly, he rocked her against him. His chest smelled of wet clay, his shirt of sweat and cigarettes. Be still, he said holding her tight. Be still now. You did good. Real good, Sandy. You saved him. Be still. Sandy, lead inspector for the Arkansas Highway and Transportation Department, and Wayne, chief engineer in Springdale, come together to form an unlikely partnership, a kind of country song, with a melody and lyricism. So let's join the monumental task of building a highway from Greenland to West Fork with Sandy and Wayne and Arthur Steve Yates on Arts and Letters. Steve Gates, welcome to Arts and Letters. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. This is grand. Thank you for sending us this novella. I know you've written several novels mm-hmm. and a short story collection. Mm-hmm. What were the differences between writing a longer form novel or a shorter form in series of short stories and a novella, which is something in between? It's something in between. And I really, I think, to make one that's really good, you have to want to make something that long because the rewards are a long way off. It's going to take you longer than a short story to finish, and it's going to take you a lot longer to publish it. And I really, I wanted to. I really wanted to. When you think of the great novellas, you think of, you know, Ward Six and Station Master Fall and friend of my youth. Lost her eyes yeah. goodbye, Mr. Chips. Yeah. I love I love novellas. Pedersen kids, <laughs> exactly you know, right. all of these great novellas. And I thought I could see this narrative, let's call it that to not confuse it with just story or short story. I could see this narrative, but I knew that it was gonna take a bit to make all of the key scenes in it happen. And I really felt that I could write it almost like a country song. And I 
Yeah, and it begins with the beautiful description of of trick of light. Trick of light, right? right? The uh, the <laughs> horse in this book. There is nothing like walking behind a thoroughbred filly on a freezing morning, watching that bounding step, those jouncing back pasterns, two pinion feather pogo springs, that roll of the big eager eyes, that steaming breath with every nod of the head. Nothing like it to make a woman wonder why? Why these hills, these stars, that fog, these acres? This ready animal, why us alone? I wake up with the sunrise, face the glass, looking inside, ask me if everything's alright. And thank you, strange ever opening your heart. When you read the mother open me so The horse doesn't appear that much in the book. It, there's no. <laughs> there's elements of the relationship working through the horse, but you kind of bookend it with the horse. Why did you do that? Well, Tammy and I fell in love going to the horse races at Hot Springs, Arkansas. We were both working at the Springfield News Leader together, and we were amazed at how upset people in Springfield would become if the Oaklawn results were not published in the Springfield News Leader. So we said, you know what, let's find out what in the world is going on down there in Hot Springs. So that was our first trip together courting. And we went to Hot Springs, and it was a little bit of an arduous journey back then from Springfield. It's easier now. But we watched three, four races before we looked at each other and said, you know, we could place a bet on these if we wanted to, because it was just so beautiful. We were just so taken with the horses and the jockeys and the colors and everything. And I think that just infected every one of my stories. There was always a horse somewhere in the story. It would take some fine kind of country song, Sandy Coker reflected, key of G like her late father used to play, with his extra flourish, that ring finger on the B string, three frets up, so that the already pretty chord rang like a bell on a bald. And this is a love story. I mean, at its heart, it's it's a love story. It is, yeah. And I wanted it to be, especially with Sandy, that moment in life when your career is solid, you know where you're going as far as that's concerned, but your career keeps taking you further and further away from the chance for love, for the chance for anything lasting. I'm a woman in a world of concrete dreams in the south that's 93. Against all odds, breaking down perceptions of me. A little burnt out, admit I've been knocked down and ignored. I've always meant business, but I had a glimpse of curiosity. And I'll never forget that Arkansas Highway. Winded, twisted, tore me up, but never let me stray. And those who work on the highways, who work on the interstates, they are really a lonely set. That is a hard life, and especially hard and isolating for a woman to achieve as she was achieving, for her to be a chief inspector in the 1990s in the Arkansas Highway and Transportation Department. It was a real rarity. The person that I modeled this after, who I knew well, she was the only chief inspector in the Springdale office. I do not know whether other offices around had trusted anyone 
to that level who happen to be female. entrance into the gravel lot of the Maurer Construction Headquarters on Highway Job AR-4005 stirred nothing in the contractor's green trailer. Even when she slammed the carry-all door, the blinds on the trailer didn't rise. The front door didn't pop open. The air conditioner rattled, but everything else was silent. This was a moment she looked forward to anticipating the shock and eventual smugness when a salty bunch of foremen first faced the lead inspector of the Arkansas Highway and Transportation Department and found her to be a sun-hardened, blonde, blue-eyed gal, no bigger than a jockey. And I'll admit that I wonder what could have been We let it all in before it began And this is Sandy. If you go back and look at the history of the creation of Highway, is it now 471? It used to be 71, right? The per mile cost, once you reach the Arkansas line, was astronomical. So just from Greenland to West Fork was something like 49 million. Wow. You could walk from Greenland to West Fork, right? 49 million to get that through. And so one person is in charge of making sure that every single thing is right before the contractor gets paid. That person has a high-stakes life. That person has a lot of conflict. That person has got to solve a lot of problems because nothing goes to blueprint plan except maybe the bridges. Bets were rumored all around the office. How long until a dust-up forced Sandy Coker to endure chair duty with the chief engineer in Springdale? She took two steps and opened the door, expecting to surprise a covey of randy men. Instead, just one lean fellow hunched in a metal chair. So we've met her a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Wayne. Um, mm-hmm. He's a bit of an enigma. He seems like a solid, very strong, silent type, mm-hmm. but he has um, he has a real soft, soft places that you wouldn't imagine. Yeah. And he seems lonely too. They're two destined lonely people to be together. They are two stars, aren't they, about to cross. Let's kind of meet him. When he turned to see who had intruded on him, she saw his eyes so silver-blue they could have been circles of mercury. He did not rise, did not even wave at her to take a seat. In one hand, he gripped the microphone to a radio set. In the other, he pinched a cigarette, holding it so lightly Sandy thought he might flick it away any second. A swarm of nonsense buzzed from the radio. It's a permit you have to get, O-1. Over, the man said. Tubes in the back of the radio glowed a grungy orange when he spoke. Otherwise, we'll have to wait on another 30-day window. Over. His accent was clearly country, but nothing like Sandy's. He sounded like people she knew from Kansas City. The radio crackled. Do it in my sleep, the man answered. 4,005 out. What's this you do in your sleep? Sandy asked him. He grinned more broadly, and she noted that his straight teeth were not too yellow. His hair was peppered gray, but thick and wavy. He seemed mischievous and appealing to her, more 
than was safe for him to be. Better not say. He flicked the cigarette on the linoleum and pressed it out quickly and efficiently with the heel of his work boot. So ye must be the Arkansas Highway Department's idea of a lead inspector. Here was the attitude she expected. Idea? I'm the fact, Buster. So we like her, and then we don't like him, and then we don't like her so much, you know? I mean, or we feel she's being a little defensive, maybe, or well, and we yeah, get absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I like those valences. If this were just a romance novel, think about it that way. If anything, Tammy taught me a whole lot. My wife taught me a whole lot about the form of the romance <laughs> novel, right? They meet. They fight. <laughs> she discovers he's a charitable soul. They converse. They become friends. <gasps> We're listening to author Steve Yates talk about his novella, Sandy and Wayne. We'll be back in a moment. This is Arts and Letters. Let's return to our conversation with author Steve Yates as he talks about his novella, Sandy and Wayne. And Sandy, because she works with men, she needs to be very careful about her relationships with not only the men that work in this area, but it just seems like she does not want them to think that a man has the upper hand. Why do they take this chance? Because it could mean the end of both of them in terms of the thing that is their life, their entire identity. And they know what they're getting into. They're not they're not stupid. I mean, they're not just this isn't a one night deal. This right, is and they're not besotted when they do it. Right? And they're calm about it too. They're very clandestine where they meet, they're smart about it. I mean, this small little town. I mean, this is a bitty place. You can easily be caught. I wasn't looking for trouble, but I just might give it a try. Leave your worries at the door just once. So what night? I don't know what time will bring. I just want to feel everything. Hold me close as these moments pass. She was scraping a pan sullied from some ill-advised late-night snack Wayne had cooked them. Friday night, they had too many beers in a Goshen bar with a wonderful jukebox that played Hank Sr. and Patsy and Johnny and Willie and even three old chestnuts from Tom T. Hall. For the first time, just before last call, she and Wayne danced. I told myself I wasn't looking for trouble, but I just might give it a try. Leave your worries at the door just once. So what night? I don't know what time will bring. I just want to feel everything. Hold me close as these moments pass.
Okay, so I think I see it now. We have somebody from the Arkansas Ozarks and from the Missouri Ozarks. Yeah. And they come together. Right. That's very clever. <laughs> I guess you're trying to show some of the differences between, you know, Missouri and Arkansas. Yeah, the attitudes, the, the difficulty in solving problems. I mean, when they first meet, they can't seem to solve a problem together. They're always at odds. But right. as they go through the story, uh, they learn so much more about each other, and they start to find these common human threads. He starts to realize Sandy wants something out of life. She wants something lasting. And I dream of the day You'll proudly take my hand But if I leave before it goes I hope you'll understand You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking to author Steve Yates about his novella, Sandy and Wayne. It's intimated later that people are talking that they're closer than they should be. Mm-hmm. Why does she? Why does she do it? Because to me, it seems it's her decision. Yeah, I mean, he could want it, but oh, she yeah. makes the decision that she's going to go with this. Why does she? Why does she make this decision? Why does she say stay? Well, they've been through that awful moment where they saved that old worker. Any of y'all know CPR? He hollered. I wear mine like a pair of horns. Get on the radio, Sandy said to the survey crew chief. Get an ambulance out here. Last night she dreamed of horses. And distant ring cord. You know CPR then? Wayne asked. I tear the top off of this mountain. She nodded. She knew it from required training, but had only performed it for real once on her father when she found him in the stable. Then it had been too late. And as soon as one job is over. The ditch crew parted and Sandy kneeled. The old drunk lay on the ground, a gray bearded man with greasy gray and white hair. A temporary situation. He wore a stained yellow shirt that said, Surf's up! logo of the pitcher-shaped Kool-Aid man rode a surfboard above the old worker's pot belly. His face, which seemed part Mexican to Sandy, was a dark purple. The old man wasn't breathing. She tilted his head back and his mouth dropped open. Pushing two fingers inside, she felt around in the gooey airway. Then she looked over his white tongue to where his uvula was pasted dryly against one of his tonsils. There was nothing blocking his airway. She pinched his nose and was bending down to deliver her first puff when Wayne grabbed her shoulder. I got one of them things you put between his mouth and yours. I didn't learn with anything like that, she said almost angrily. What he said didn't make things any easier. You know how to use one? Wayne shook his head. They just give me the equipment, no training. You start training right now. Wayne knelt down beside her. She bent over the old man and swallowed. Then she took a breath and gripped the old man's chin with one hand and kept his nose pinched with the other. She popped her mouth over his, feeling the scale on his lips, the slime at their corners, his whiskers needling her face. It took intense concentration to create a seal between her small mouth and his large, flaccid, dry lips. She flexed facial muscles she had never considered. Do this right or he dies. She thought in a loop to battle her revulsion at the act, this embrace, a hideous kiss. 
She puffed hard, breathed in through her nose, puffed twice more. The old man's mouth was a cesspool of stale booze and vomit. Raising up, she wiped her mouth and fought back a gag. It was a relief to see Wayne down on his knees there watching her. Spread your palm out like this. Now put your other hand on it. She grabbed Wayne's hands and positioned the heel of Wayne's palm on the old worker's breastbone. Now mash down hard 30 times and count out loud. He started. Hard, I said. The ditch crew gathered close, as if ready to defend their crewmate. Sandy leaned over to Wayne and whispered, I'm not kidding you. You should feel his ribs break. She said. Harder and stop at 30. Three more puffs, and once again she fought the gag, but did not wipe her mouth. When she had drawn her hand across her lips on the first round, the stink and taste of the old man's sweat made her struggle even more difficult. Wayne hit 30, and she breathed into the old man again. When she drew back, the ground seemed to lift and spin beneath her knees. She found herself needing Wayne's shirt. That's good, Wayne. That's good. Now, if he comes to, the first thing he'll likely do is throw up. So be ready to turn him with me fast. On her next cycle, on her third puff, she felt a gurgle start deep in his throat and resistance blocking the breath she was forcing in him. She lurched back. Help me, Wayne. But he was already with her, lifting the old man to turn him away from Sandy and onto his side. The old worker gasped and then retched, not violently, but with a miserable slow steadiness born of exhaustion. And actually that scene with the older worker was something that I witnessed. We were using the Theatolite, and it's a, a very fancy computerized device that quite literally you could, you know, two miles away look at somebody's shirt button if you needed to. And down in the cut, as we call it, was the ditch crew. And there was a great big commotion down there. And being nosy, I swung the Theatolite down there to see what in the world was going on. And it looked at first like a fight. And then they were holding that old fellow upside down and bouncing him by his head. And I thought, my God, they were really pounding this fellow. And he's in trouble. And Uh then, you know, along came the contractor's truck and uh, stopped out there. And then the truck turned around and came screaming up to us up on that ridge. And the dirt foreman who was in charge said, does anybody know how to do CPR? And nobody in my crew did anything. I thought, oh. And so, you know, we went down there and got ready to do it and started into the compressions part. And thank God he immediately kicked awake and started fighting. And I was never more happy to be fought. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking to author Steve Yates about his novella, Sandy and Wayne. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking to author Steve Yates about his novella, Sandy and Wayne. The scene was behind them. The old man's fate was in the hands of the medics. Wayne shut off the engine. Now, he said, facing her, It was as if he knew. She swung at him, struck his chest, wailed at his arms. Damn it, Wayne! Damn him! Damn it! In some ways, I mean, there's no gender in that truck at that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, they are two workers. Not workmen, not workwomen, workers. And she's had it, and she's got to blow. She's got to absolutely blow the valve and release all that pressure and he lets her it's beautifully done and of course we find that she wasn't able to save her dad yeah who had a heart attack 
Yeah, and that's what she tells him in the bar room. And, you know, as I had been writing the novel, that's one of those moments where the surprise comes out of a character's mouth, where I, I had planned, well, she's alone and she's recently lost her father. But you've put that basic fact out, but the impact of it, I didn't really know until it came out of her mouth when the two of them are in that bar together. You act like it's not true That we drank and we laughed until two And she explains to Wayne, I've just figured this out, that now I know I can save someone, and here previously I wasn't able to. I didn't put my heart on the line Just to fall with an uncertain light I held your head in my hands through the night I remember every words Look in your eyes What if we was there? Miscommunication your 2 a.m. shadow I'm not your place to go and no one picks up the phone don't try to tell me it's in my head this whole book is such a give and take one gives one takes one takes one gives one gives one you know yeah it's such do you know what I mean I mean I do you're yeah. moving back and forth between them and I, I really like that struggle it's it's Terrific. What if we was there? Miscommunication. I don't want to be your 2 a.m. shadow. I'm not your place to go, and no one picks up the phone. Don't try to tell me it's in my head. Do you change your mind a lot, or is this just not? you thought it'd be Cause I'd like to meet your friends someday There comes a moment in this that's just horrifying. This moment is an epiphany, but it's horrible. Were you writing toward this scene? Oh yeah, this was one of the blocks. I believe it was High Rod Harold who told me this terrible story. On the porch of the A-frame, a thin, pale woman with black rings under her eyes and straight, dark, greasy hair stared out at a toddler. The youngster darted toward Sandy and Wayne, and Sandy stopped in surprise. The little one didn't toddle or wobble, but zipped forward, then dodged and circled them on legs that seemed far too balanced and sure for her age. When Wayne halted dramatically and made a face, the youngster laughed and ran to her mom. Her curly red hair bounced behind her. Ms. Yarberry, this is Wayne, and he's from Missouri. She wanted to be vicious. Look what a fix this poor mother was left in. He works for that contractor up the hill. Them dark green trucks you've been seeing. Wayne still had his hat off, and he appeared silly to Sandy wadding that hat against his belt buckle, looking penitent. Ma'am, are you having trouble getting up that driveway? Dang right I am. The exhausted mother kept her black-rimmed eyes on the toddler, who hustled over to Sandy and held up some blades of plantain. Odour, said the child. Dujour. Unlike the mother, she had an elfish face, narrow chin, round cheeks. Danjour. She pressed the plantain leaves into Sandy's palm. The tired mother shook her head. Don't you all think by two she would be talking English? But I swear to God, this funny French stuff is all that comes out of her mouth. Yeah, so why, why French? Uh, that's so easy. My little niece in Oregon, Ashley Lynn, spoke a kind of Dutch-French for at least a year. 
And it was the weirdest stuff in the world. She sounded like a little bird and du jour, danjour, and it made no sense. She didn't have a twin to speak with. You know, sometimes twins will have a very bizarre language together. It was just her. It was just Ashley. She was just a wonderful, kooky kid. The tank pulled Sandy toward the clothesline and the strange gray dog, which watched the child with an interest that began to bother Sandy. The dog was too alert and reminded her of a coyote in the way its eyes shifted, but its head remained still. Tonight the moon is nice and Oh, she loves that doggy, Siska. The mother said. Say doggy, sweetie. Just one time, say something in English. Ninety-eight percent wolf, that one. My husband drove all the way down to Idaho to pick that one out himself. Wayne looked at Sandy. She was about to go into an explanation of the mother's rights, the redress the poor woman could demand of Maurer, when the child jerked on both of Sandy's hands, making her arms go stiff. Sandy tried to straighten up, but the child gripped her hands more firmly, and in one deft move, she leapt, planted her bare feet on Sandy's shins, up on her thighs, still running, then flipped herself over and landed on both feet, facing the wolf, still holding on to Sandy's fingertips, with her arms thrown back. Oh my, Sandy exclaimed. Wayne's eyes were wide. Sweetie, I told you that scares people, the mother griped. She reached out, but the laughing girl released Sandy and ran away. When the wolf lunged, the rope gagged it and whirled it off its feet. lead inspector that I kind of modeled this after, as those lead inspectors do, they get to know the whole district around their five miles or so of highway that's being built. And she had been very concerned about this family and a dog that had been out there, and this very thing happened. happened. The emergency phone was state property and not publicly listed. But on an August morning, she pulled it from its black case and answered, Coker, AR 4005. Is this that lady with the highway department? Miss Yarberry? I need you here right now. Shrill the voice. She raced along the freshly striped frontage road and easily found the new driveway down to the A-frame. She forced herself to slow and pull up to the house cautiously in case the toddler or the dog might be running about. The driveway was smooth and long, easy to navigate, and Sandy calmed herself by thinking that Wayne and Maurer had done right by this woman. Miss Yarberry was in the yard, standing stiffly. Blood was dripping down her arms. Otherwise, her face and skin were sheet white. Sandy opened the carryall door very slowly. Miss Yarberry stared at her, and Sandy could hear that the young mother was making a noise like a steam valve losing pressure, a high, insistent whine. Her teeth were clenched. Both of her forearms were mauled and bleeding. On her face were wounds that looked like a range of purple mountains in some awful Oriental-style drawing. When Sandy drew closer, She saw the toddler on the ground, just behind the mother, face down in a pink sundress. Sandy 
baby wasn't moving. Trying to keep control, she looked to the clothesline where the animal had been the wolf. It wasn't there. Sandy heard the woman's feet shuffle away, then heard her cry out and curse. Biting her lip, Sandy opened her eyes to take one long look at the baby and get her bearings. Lady, I want you to get in the carryall if you can. Will you do that, please? She knew, as isolated as they were out there, there's no ambulance that's going to get here in time. No, there's right. only one hope, me Getting and that carryall, and we go to the hospital. Right. And even then, I mean, as Harold was telling me the story, I was like, this is so awful because I knew just from anatomy it's a little one like that. So uh, I couldn't help but think, my God, the impact on a person, the impact on her, strong as she was, strong as she mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that would be just awful and... um so whenever you face something that's like that, that's awful, I mean, you, as a writer, you almost work it out as a puzzle. You write it. Right. And she has to face this alone. He's not with her. No. I'm not saying it would have turned out differently, but, it, I mean, it might have turned them toward each other in, in some other ways. She can't, she can't do this on her own. I mean, Wayne <laughs> can't know what that was like to have that child in his lap. And as we said, or at least as I am reading it, it's a bit emblematic of the family they, they could have. So it's almost Very. like her child. Yeah, she has the highways that she can look at that are the legacy, but she doesn't have the flesh and blood like, and she wants that. To me, that's why she's risking this. This might well turn into marriage or children or something, she's willing to risk that. And um, it suggests this relationship's not going to make it necessarily. In the holy ancient tablet, it says a woman's work is never done. But in the quiet of these hollows, it seems like I'm the only one. I thought we would end and not tell what happens to Sandy and, and Wayne, but I love this passage. They've come back together after this experience, and Sandy certainly explained what's happened. How might we, we just talk about kind of this moment? Because I, I find this moment extraordinarily powerful. Because at the end, you know, there's a bit of a coda too. But I find it particularly strong here with respect to the horse. And of course, the horse is on the cover of the book. Yeah. And trick of light. And these elements of light and, and lightness and the semantics of light. Light itself, things being light, things being heavy, heavy burdens, lighter burdens, Lighten our burdens. A lot of light. Her hands, thin, tiny, and sun-creased, shocked her, emerging from the sudsy water. Brown, knotted. They were like the gnarly roots of the dwarf fruit trees her dad had been so enthused about near the end of his life. Out the kitchen window, up on a hill, she saw Wayne standing in the morning sun, very still, and her heart caught with worry that something was wrong. Trick of light loped up the hill to him, but he didn't acknowledge her, just stood with his head down. Though Sandy could not see for sure, she thought Wayne's eyes were shut. All of Trick's body language slowed in tempo, heightened in ceremony, as if she were a lipizzaner or one of those creepy counting horses at the state fair about to perform. Whatever was going to happen, Sandy knew it was something Wayne and Trick had done before, 
something the horse enjoyed. Wayne clasped his hands in front of him, about belt high, and looked like a Baptist praying in church. With one last high step, Trick bumped Wayne's ear with her muzzle. Next, she dropped her head over his shoulder and inched forward until her throat latch rested on his collarbone. Then, and this Sandy could clearly see, Trick of Light closed her eyes and the two stood there in the sunlight like mournful statues. After a minute or two, the scene was too much for her. When had he had time to teach the filly to do that? Or damn it, had it just happened naturally when Trick saw Wayne was the right height And so she plunked her head there one night and found it soothing and knew she could come back to him and do the same again. Such an intense communion, like one of those silly velvet paintings that are peddled on horse-struck girls, but there it was happening on her hillside. Wayne hadn't said a word the trick would do this. Sandy knew she and Wayne, horse people, attached great significance to these quirks. Horses, though, just knew pleasure and sought it out. Maybe these few nights of pleasure. Like they sought water or sunlight. Are better anyhow. Traction was so treacherous. No teary-eyed conversation. Down in the sink, her fingers puckered, the skin going dead white and slightly blue. All at the same time, she wanted to march up that hill and tell Wayne to gather his stuff and get on back where he belonged. We'll retire to the tavern. Just as much, she wanted to call him to her. Where secrets have a home. She wanted to unlatch the window in front of her and raise it and holler out, Wayne, come in here. I need you. And then she wanted to see him turn away from every distraction. She wanted to see him come striding for her. That one had a little bit of Miller Williams in it, I have to say. There's a beautiful Sestina that Miller wrote, and the end of it, you know, that was the magic that he could make happen in poetry. It was so like country music. But the end of that Sestina, a complicated form of poem, oh, good grief, are they complicated, and some of them are dreadfully boring. But the end of that has just this beautiful line that just says, Come here, let me love you. Damn nation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious, he could really uh, just do wonders. And you know, I worked for him for four, five years there at University of Arkansas Press. I was publicist when he was director. And one day, I can't remember what we were watching, but it, one of our authors was doing something really, really big. And Miller was with just the marketing department, and something made him stop and say, you know, there may be no higher calling than writing a good country music song. I love it. So what was the last line, the line in the Sistina? Come here, let me love you. That's a beautiful one. And that's what, what she's saying. I want to see you come striding for me. You know, treacherous desire is so treacherous. <laughs> well, thank you, Steve. Sure, this has been beautiful.
Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Thank you to the following composers, musicians, and singers. Thank you to the Snake Sutras. Original theme by Brandon Markin, Louisa Rook, Katie Elliott, and Trevor Bates. Thank you to Donovan Suit and the Madly Children. And Ashton Barbary. Thank you to voice actors, Brandon Markin, V. Wurgis, and Louisa Rook. Thank you to Mary Ellen Cubitt for the story editing advice. Thank you to Chris Hickey for the effects and for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer Steve Yates for ethnographically helping us to understand the culture of highway workers and for constructing this love story of Sandy and Wayne. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words of Miller Williams. Everybody wants to be loved, and that's hard. That's hard. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.